Sunday, March 19, 1939. Lloyd L. Gaines had already made national headlines at the age of 28 when he, with the help of the NAACP, triumphed in a landmark civil rights case against the University of Missouri, where the Supreme Court ordered U of M's law school to admit him, despite strict segregation policies. During the course of the multiple trials leading to the Supreme Court ruling, Lloyd attended various rallies and speaking engagements on behest of the NAACP. In spite of, or more likely because of the publicity of the case, he was having difficulty finding work as a teacher and had traveled from Missouri to Kansas and finally Chicago, Illinois in search of better employment prospects. He was exhausted from the constant publicity tours, speaking engagements, and lack of privacy that had become the norm in such civil rights cases. And he just wanted to be, as he put it, a plain, ordinary man whose name no one recognized. When leaving the Alpha Phi Alpha fraternity house in Southside Chicago that Sunday evening, he told a housekeeper that he was going out to buy stamps and would return soon, but he was never seen again. The mystery that surrounds Lloyd Gaines's disappearance still haunts what remains of his family. How could a man with limited means and public notoriety simply vanish into thin air? Why didn't the FBI investigate his disappearance? Is there evidence that he was paid to disappear so the landmark civil rights case would go belly up? We'll explore this famous missing persons case in this episode of I Read a Thing's True Crime Tuesday. Let's dive in. Lionel Gaines was born in 1911, the exact date being unknown. He was one of 11 children, but several of his siblings died in childhood. That's so sad. His parents, Henry Richard Gaines and Callie S. Gaines, both worked as sharecroppers, with Henry previously working as a teacher. They were respected and beloved in the small community of Water Valley, Mississippi, and lived there until Henry passed away in 1916. Around 1926, Callie ditched the rural life and moved her children to St. Louis, Missouri in a charming little brownstone located at 3932 West Bell Place. The building sadly seems to have been replaced by a newer home built next to an empty plot of land, which is really sad because it was adorable. The Gaines family move can be considered part of the larger Great Migration that saw around 6 million Black people move from the rural South to more urban areas of the Midwest, Northeast, and West. Previously living as sharecroppers, the Gaines children likely had to assist with the farming duties to keep the bills paid and the family fed. So when Lloyd started school in St. Louis, he had to backtrack to an elementary level education, despite being 15. Don't get it twisted, though, because Lloyd was brilliant and dedicated, and he not only caught up with his peers, but managed to finish high school within three years, graduating first in his class. And I want to say that he went back to fifth grade. So that's like a really big deal. I cannot overstate that. He was skilled in debate and won a $250 scholarship in an essay contest, which he used to enroll in a teacher's college. Unfortunately, 
money would be a consistent issue in his life, and he ended up dropping out of college due to lack of funds. But do you think that that stopped him? Because, like, this story would be really short if it did. So no, it did not. He continued to work towards funding his education, winning another modest scholarship, and being accepted into the historic Lincoln University, a school for Black students in Jefferson City. He would graduate as president of his senior class, and he was an honors graduate in history and was known for his skill in debate. Again, he's an overachiever, and overachievers make me sleepy. Lloyd decided he would like to pursue a graduate program in law, which was a perfect fit for his skill set. According to a census, there were only 36 black lawyers in all of Missouri, and all had sought education elsewhere, as the only law education available was the all-white University of Missouri Law School. Lloyd was, first and foremost, a family-oriented man. While he could be a loner, he also regularly communicated with his mother and even spent his meager savings buying a graduation dress for his youngest sister. He wanted to study and practice law in state, so he decided to apply to the University of Missouri's law school, regardless of the segregation policy. So there are a few things that we need to talk about before we get into any of this, just to kind of set the stage. And the first one is post-Civil War Reconstruction. When the Civil War ended in 1865, there was a brief period of potential for reparations and massive societal changes across the United States. During the period known as Reconstruction, which is 1865 to 1877, military presence in the South continued while the government decided upon the conditions of the Southern states' return to the Union. Among a myriad of social issues, the question of how to manage reparations for the nearly 4 million formerly enslaved people were discussed. When freed from slavery, Black people were faced with trying to rebuild their lives with no resources and no citizenship. In the first year of Reconstruction, amazingly enough, formerly enslaved folks were asked by the government what they wanted for themselves. In a gathering in Savannah, Georgia in 1865, Black leaders debated what to request. Their request was simple, land. The way we can best take care of ourselves is to have land and to turn it and till it by our own labor, and we can soon maintain ourselves and have something to spare. We want to be placed on land until we are able to buy it and make it our own. The government agreed and ordered the redistribution of 400,000 acres of land along South Carolina, Georgia, and the coast of Florida. However, after the assassination of President Abraham Lincoln, successor Andrew Johnson completely backtracked the deal. It's a real uh, see you next Tuesday. Preparations were never fulfilled, and the oppressive regime of racist laws continued despite the technical freedom of Black citizens. It's impossible to quantify the poverty created by the government's lack of follow-through on reparations. The 13th Amendment forever abolished slavery as an institution in all U.S. states and territories. In addition to banning slavery, the amendment outlawed the practice of involuntary servitude and peonage. Involuntary servitude or peonage occurs when a person is coerced to work in order to pay off debts. Let's ignore that banning peonage wasn't a real thing because, you know, industrial prison complex, because that's another topic for another day, and I'm not getting into it right now. Let's move on to the 14th Amendment, and then we'll talk more about that. The 14th Amendment, ratified in 1868, granted citizenship to all persons born or naturalized in the United States, which included former slaves recently freed. In addition, it forbids states from denying any person life, liberty, or property without due process of law or to deny any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. Now let's talk about Jim Crow. The term Jim Crow originates back to 1828 when a white New York comedian, Thomas Dartmouth, Daddy Rice, I don't want to call him Daddy, performed in blackface his song and dance that he called Jump Jim Crow, 
Rice's performance was supposedly inspired by the song and dance of a physically disabled black man he had seen in Cincinnati, Ohio, named Jim Cuff or Jim Crow. The song became a huge hit in the 19th century, and Thomas Rice performed it across the country as Daddy Jim Crow, a caricature of a shabbily dressed African-American man. Jump Jim Crow initiated a new form of popular music and theatrical performances in the United States that focused their attention on the mockery of African-Americans caricatured as lazy buffoons. So Jim Crow laws refer to state-enforced segregation policies against African-Americans specifically meant to do away with any gains made by Black people during the Reconstruction period. As early as 1837, the term Jim Crow was used to describe racial segregation in Vermont. Now let's talk about tenant farming and sharecropping. You'll remember that Lloyd's father and mother were both farmers. After the failure to redistribute land in the immediate aftermath of the war, most people, black or white, did not own land. As cash was scarce, the system of sharecropping arose to meet the need of white landowners of labor for land cultivation and the needs of poor farmers of all races for physical and economic survival. With a sharecropping contract, poor farmers were granted access to farm small plots of land. Instead of paying rent in cash, they were required to give a portion of the crop yield, called shares, back to the landowner. Depending on the contract, sharecropping farmers received anywhere between one-fourth and three-fourths of the actual returns on their labor. An alternative and preferable arrangement was tenant farming. If a farmer could accumulate enough of his own equipment and money, he would pay a landowner rent for farmland and a house out of the money brought in from the harvest. The tenant farmer kept all of the proceeds from the crop and just paid bills, essentially. The North Carolina Landlord-Tenant Acts of 1868 and 1877 codified a fundamental power imbalance between landowners and sharecropping farmers. The laws entitled property owners to set the worth of a crop at settling time and did not obligate landlords to put contracts in writing or require tenants to have access to ledgers or records. Beyond that, poor farmers without money to buy the fertilizer, tools, animals, and machinery necessary to farm had to borrow from landowners or merchants on credit and often at really exorbitant interest rates. The result of this power imbalance combined with the unpredictability of nature was that most sharecropping and tenant farmers were barely able to make ends meet, and many became indebted to their landlords. There were also ecological consequences to the cropland system. Trying to get ahead, these farmers would plant commodity crops intensively year after year, and we all know that that depletes nutrients. You can't do that. An 1877 report of the state's Bureau of Labor Statistics stated that the cropland system had proven a worse curse to North Carolina than droughts, floods, cyclones, storms, rust, caterpillars, and every other evil that attends the farmer. For newly freed people, many of whom worked the same land, lived in the same housing, and worked under the same close supervision of the same overseers, sharecropping was like slavery under another name. Sharecroppers' behavior was monitored by white superintendents who were paid from crop yields before settling, which means cutting into sharecroppers' earnings. Undefined gross misconduct could result in tenants being made to leave and completely forfeit their share of crops. Further, sharecropping farmers were prohibited from selling crops on their own without notifying the landowner and having a superintendent present. No large gatherings of Black people other than for Sunday worship were allowed on the land. Now let's talk about the separate but equal education. Separate but equal was a legal doctrine in the United States constitutional law according to which racial segregation did not necessarily violate the 14th Amendment to the United States Constitution, which guaranteed equal protection under the law to all people. Under the doctrine, as long as the facilities provided to each race 
we'll talk about race, were equal, state and local governments could require that services, facilities, public accommodations, housing, medical care, education, employment, transportation, all of that be segregated by race, which was already the case throughout the states of the former Confederacy anyway. The phrase was derived from a Louisiana law of 1890, although the law actually used the phrase equal but separate. This is a list I got from America's Black Holocaust Museum, specifically about the schools. Southern schools were racially segregated. Schools for white children received more public money. And that tradition continues today with lower income neighborhoods receiving less school funding. Fewer African Americans were enrolled in school. Black children were often pulled out of school because they were needed to farm. To plant and harvest enough crops, sharecroppers' children had to work alongside their parents. Even if they weren't needed on the farm, the white owner of the farm might pull black children out if he decided they were needed for work. There were not as many public schools available for black students. If a town did not have enough money for two separate schools, they built only one school for white children. This was especially true in the rural towns. <laughs> it's so hard to say rural because most rural towns had very little money. City school systems had more money than rural ones. Oh my God, that's gonna keep popping up for me to say. However, at the time in the South, most African-Americans lived in rural areas on farms. On the other hand, many white children lived in cities and could attend well-funded city schools. In rural areas, schools for both black and white children were scheduled around the cotton growing season. These schools were open fewer days than city schools. As a result, many black children went to school only two or three months out of the entire year. Among the African-Americans who did attend school, most were in the fourth grade or lower. Many left school after the fourth grade. Therefore, it would be a long time before there would be a large number of black people going to college. Many school buildings for African-Americans had leaking roofs, sagging floors, and windows without glass. They ranged from untidy to absolutely filthy, according to a study issued in 1917. If black children had any books at all, they were hand-me-downs from white schools. Black schools were overcrowded with too many students per teacher. More black schools than white had only one teacher to handle students from toddlers to eighth graders. Black schools were more likely to have all grades together in one room. There were not enough desks for the overcrowded classrooms. Black teachers did not receive as much training as white teachers. And on top of that, the salary for black teachers was so pitifully low that it was hard to find fully qualified ones. There were limits on what blacks could be taught in school. White school leaders did not want black children to be exposed to ideas like equality and freedom. Carter G. Woodson told how some black children in Southern schools were not allowed to use books that included the Declaration of Independence or the U.S. Constitution. These documents state that government should get its power from consent of the governed. Reading them would confirm for African Americans that they were being denied the rights due to all citizens of the United States. And we can't have that. Just a couple more things to talk about before we get on to the, you know, main situation that we're talking about. Previous lawsuits and precedences that apply here. The nation's answer to the question who is black has long been that black is any person with any known African black history. In the South, it became known as the one drop rule, meaning that a single drop of black blood makes a person a black. It is also known as the one black ancestor rule. Some courts have called it the traceable amount rule, and anthropologists call it the hypodescent rule, meaning that racially mixed persons are assigned the status of the subordinate group. This definition emerged from the American South to become the nation's definition, just generally accepted by all structures of power. Not only does the one drop rule apply to absolutely no other group than American blacks, but apparently the rule is so unique that, in that it is only found in the United States. 
and not any other nation in the world. In fact, definitions of who is black vary quite sharply from country to country, and for this reason, people in other countries often express consternation about our definition. James Baldwin relates a revealing incident that occurred in 1956 at the Conference of Negro African Writers and Artists held in Paris. The head of the delegation of writers and the artists from the United States was John Davis. The French chairperson introduced Davis and then asked why he considered himself Negro. Why he considered himself Negro since he certainly did not look like one. And I'm sorry I'm using that word, but it's what they said at the time. And since I'm quoting people, I have to say it. Baldwin wrote, He is a Negro, of course, from the remarkable legal point of view which obtains in the United States. But more importantly, as he tried to make clear to his interlocutor, he was a Negro by choice and by depth of involvement, by experience, in fact. So now let's talk about Plessy versus Ferguson. Louisiana enacted the Separate Car Act, which required separate railway cars for blacks and whites. In 1892, Homer Plessy, who was seven-eighths Caucasian, unfortunately labeled octoroon at the time. It's a fucking gross term that I don't endorse, so please don't come for me. So Plessy agreed to participate in the test to challenge the act. He was solicited by the Committee of Citizens, a group of New Orleans residents who sought to repeal the act. They asked Plessy, who is technically black under Louisiana law, to sit in a whites-only car of a Louisiana train. The railroad cooperated because it thought the act imposed unnecessary costs via the purchase of additional railroad cars, and nobody wants to pay for that shit. When Plessy was told to vacate the whites-only car, he refused and was arrested. The resulting separate but equal decision against him had wide consequences for civil rights in the United States. The decision legalized state-mandated segregation anywhere in the United States so long as the facilities provided for both blacks and whites were basically equal. Yeah, right. Everything that the committee had organized occurred as planned, except for the decision of the Supreme Court in 1896. By then, the composition of the U.S. Supreme Court had gained a more segregationist tilt, and the committee knew it would likely lose, but it chose to press the cause anyway. Author Keith Medley said, it was a matter of honor for them that they fight this to the very end. Encouraged by Lorenzo Green, Lincoln University professor and civil rights activist, Lloyd Gaines applies for the University of Missouri Law School in August of 1935. At the same time, Gaines wrote to the president of Lincoln University, I am applying for admission to the Missouri University School of Law with no other hope than this initial move will ultimately rebound to increase the opportunities for intellectual advancement of the Negro youth. Cy Woodson Canada, a registrar of the university, approves his application and initially doesn't realize Gaines is a black man until he receives transcripts from Lincoln University, an all-black school. Later, they deny his application on the basis of race and offers to pay the out-of-state expenses for Gaines until a sufficient separate law school could be built. Registrar Canada asks him for a meeting to discuss further advice and arrangements to provide education to Gaines. Gaines wrote instead directly to President Frederick Middlebush of the University of Missouri, I am a student of limited means, but commendable scholastic standing, Gaines wrote. May I depend upon you to see that I am admitted to Missouri University, where I am sure of getting what I want at a cost that is most reasonable. An immediate reply would be highly appreciated. Middlebush never responded. Charles Hamilton Houston was a prominent African-American lawyer, dean of Howard University Law School, and NAACP first special counsel or litigation director. A graduate of Amherst College and Harvard Law School, Houston played a significant role in dismantling Jim Crow laws, especially attacking segregation in schools and racial housing covenants. He later earned the title, The Man Who Killed Jim Crow. 
Houston was looking for a candidate to challenge the Jim Crow laws that didn't allow minorities in state universities, as he believed that having more black lawyers nationwide would propel the civil rights case forward. In the documentary, The Road to Brown, Honorable Juanita Kidd Stout described Houston's strategy related to segregated schools. She said when he attacked the separate but equal theory, his real thought behind it was, all right, if you want it separate but equal, I will try to make it so expensive for you to be separate that you will have to abandon your separateness. And so that was the reason he started demanding equalization of salaries for teachers, equal facilities in the school, and all of that. Houston's strategy on public education was to attack segregation by demonstrating the inequality resulting from the separate but equal doctrine dating from the Supreme Court's Plessy versus Ferguson ruling. He orchestrated a campaign to force Southern districts to build facilities for Black equal to those for whites or to integrate their facilities. He focused on law schools because, at the time, mostly males attended them. He believed this would obviate the fears whites expressed that integrated schools would lead to interracial dating. In the later Gaines versus Canada lawsuit, which is Gaines versus the University of Missouri, Houston argued that it was unconstitutional for Missouri to exclude blacks from the state's university law school when, under the separate but equal provision, no comparable facility for blacks existed within the state. Now, here's where it gets a little murky. Accounts vary as to whether Gaines applied to the University of Missouri Law School on his own initiative or was encouraged by the NAACP in order to have a plaintiff without any interest in a legal career. When Redmond informed Houston that Gaines was willing to be a plaintiff, Houston at first asked him whether he could find someone else. Houston later yielded when it was apparent that Gaines was the only plaintiff available, but never explained what his initial objections might have been. July in 1936 in Columbia, Missouri was sweltering hot, with the temperature already exceeding 100 degrees by the time the Gaines versus Canada trial would begin. Due to the summer's severe drought, many of the local white farmers were waiting to apply for financial relief, many of whom went into the courthouse to watch the dramatic event unfold. Black lawyers were a rare sight at the time. Gaines, his lawyers, around 100 University of Missouri law students, a handful of reporters and a few locals from the community packed the courthouse. The NAACP tried to encourage locals to attend, but they were deterred by two recent lynchings, understandably. The courtroom did not offer segregated facilities, so everyone sat together. The black and white lawyers shared a table and shook hands before the case proceeded. The trial was overseen by Judge W.M. Dinwiddie, which is a wonderfully serious name, and the state was represented by William Hogsett. Hogsett conceded to Lloyd's exceptional transcript, stating that he was more than qualified and he had a right to the education he desired, just not at the University of Missouri. He stated simply that the laws in the state prohibited black students from attending the school. Cool. Gaines served as his own witness and stated that he wished to attend University of Missouri because of its quality and to remain closer to his home in St. Louis. He also stated his wish to practice law in the state of Missouri and rightly claimed a law education in the state he wanted to practice would be of more benefit to him in the long term. Upon cross-examination, Hogsett insinuated that the sole reason Gaines wanted to study at the University of Missouri or even to study law was to be a plaintiff in the civil rights case with the NAACP. He asked why he wouldn't be interested in studying at an out-of-state school even when some of them were closer to St. Louis than the University of Missouri, as well as asking why he wouldn't be interested in attending the then-hypothetical Lincoln University law program. Again, hypothetical. It wasn't built, so why ask about something that doesn't even fucking exist? Gaines said many students were not compelled to choose those options and that he wasn't aware of the University of Missouri's policy on segregation when he applied. When Canada was called to the stand, 
He said, to his knowledge, black students were the only ones barred from attending the university on account of their race, revealing that many overseas students were invited to attend, even receiving financial aid if needed. Robert Witherspoon, a black lawyer practicing in St. Louis, testified that having to attend an out-of-state school put him at a disadvantage when he opened his practice in Missouri. State Senator F.M. McDavid testified that the presence of a black student would be disruptive for both the university and the students and that Gaines would likely be unhappy there anyway. These fucking people. You wouldn't like it anyway, don't worry. We're doing you a favor. Hoxett seemed to have presented his case as a drama, focusing more on feelings and tradition, while Houston focused on presenting clear and verifiable facts. I think Houston knew he was going to climb the courts, and he wanted to present a case that was clear. No room for misinterpretation. No gotcha moments. He didn't expect to win in local courts. He knew he'd have to take it further. Two weeks after the trial, Judge Dinwiddie held for the state without offering opinions or explanations, and Houston filed an appeal to the Missouri Supreme Court. At the end of the year, the Missouri Supreme Court heard the case. This case was considered so important that all seven justices were in attendance instead of the usual two. After two months of proceedings, it upheld the original determination of Judge Dinwiddie. Justice William Francis Frank conceded that the Constitution's provision requiring the segregation of public schools didn't explicitly include a higher education, but that didn't mean legislature couldn't uphold the prohibition. Frank reiterated that segregation didn't violate the 14th Amendment. The right of a state to separate the races for the purpose of education is no longer an open question. He also rejected a due process argument that Gaines had been unconstitutionally deprived of his proprietary interest in the university as a citizen and taxpayer of Missouri. Equality and not identity of school advantages is what the law guarantees to every citizen, white or black. Justice Frank accepted the law school's evidence of non-specialization in Missouri state's law and similarities to curriculums in neighboring states' law schools. He stated that some schools, such as Illinois, were closer to St. Louis than Columbia and suggested that if Gaines were to attend school out of state, the state would subsidize his living expenses while he did. The same subsidy would not be available to him in Missouri. Furthermore, Frank suggested that other cases referenced in the proceedings weren't relevant as Missouri had put aside funds to establish a law school for black students and offered to financially support students who had to attend out of state. He believed the construction of a law school at Lincoln University should satisfy Gaines' desire to attend in-state if he could wait out the development. All of this may sound like the state bent over backwards to help Gaines, but remember, black lawyers in Missouri stated that they were at a disadvantage from having to attend out-of-state law school. Black schools were never on equal footing with white schools, receiving less funding and inadequate accommodations. And there was absolutely no reason for Gaines to be denied admittance outside of his race. The state of Missouri just wasn't interested in the equal part of the separate but equal laws. Houston and Redmond successfully petitioned to the United States Supreme Court for Certior Ari? I have no idea what that means. You can tell I'm not a lawyer. Now known as Gaines versus Canada, the case was argued in November 1938. Houston said the state's offer to pay for Gaines to attend school out of state could not guarantee him a legal education equal to that offered to white students. A month later, a 6-2 majority ordered the state of Missouri either to admit Gaines to the University of Missouri Law School or to provide another school of equal stature within the state borders. Chief Justice Charles Evans Hughes wrote for the majority. By the operation of the laws of Missouri, a privilege has been created for white law students, which is denied to Negroes by reason of their race. The white resident is afforded legal education within the state. The Negro resident, having the same qualifications, is refused it there and must go outside the state to obtain it. 
that is a denial of the equality of the legal right to the enjoyment of the privilege which the state has set up, and the provision for the payment of tuition fees in another state does not remove the discrimination. Well, yeah. This case was part of what was already assumed to be a long road toward desegregation of school. The NAACP knew that the best way to move toward desegregation was to first insist upon equivalent institutions made available for black citizens. Knowing that institutions created for black people were never equal to their white counterparts, they could then move to push for desegregation, overturning the Plessy ruling of 1896. The Supreme Court had ordered the Missouri Supreme Court to rehear the case, so Gaines had a long road ahead of him. Historian Gary Laverne describes Gaines as high maintenance, saying he both sought out media attention and complained about the stress it created. To me, it's a double bind. He needed the media attention to move the case in the right direction so he could get back to the life he wanted, but the attention made him uncomfortable. I mean, think about it. He's a loner. He doesn't want attention, but he needs it. I can't imagine what it would be like to be in that position. Okay, I don't know if I wrote this wrong. It's either He-Man or Herman. I'm going to assume that it's Herman. Herman Marion Sweat, later the plaintiff in another desegregation case, heard by the Supreme Court, worked with Gaines at the University of Michigan. The NAACP had paid for him to attend graduate school there, but Sweat reportedly found Gaines rather arrogant. Gaines completed a master's degree in economics while in Michigan and returned to Missouri to wait for the next round of court appearances, set to begin in August. Missouri had passed a bill appropriating $275,000 to convert an old beauty school in St. Louis to the new Lincoln University School of Law, hoping that would shut Gaines and his crew up. The NAACP knew about it and planned to challenge it, as there was absolutely no chance of it matching the resources of the University of Missouri School of Law. This was all going on during the Depression, by the way, and Gaines needed employment to pay for his tuition and living expenses, so he tried desperately to get a job. At first, he attempted to find employment as a teacher, but to no avail. He settled for working as a gas station attendant and booked appearances at local NAACP chapters and church groups while seeking donations. He often said, I am ready, willing, and able to enroll in the law department at the University of Missouri in September, and I have the fullest intentions of doing so. But he still had to borrow money from his brother George regularly. He was always writing here asking for money, George Gaines told Clayton. That organization, the NAACP or whatever it was, had him going around here making speeches, but when he got ready to go to Kansas City, I had to let him have $10 so he could get himself a white shirt. That's fucked up. Doesn't pay to be a spokesperson of a social movement, unfortunately. Gaines quit the job at the gas station when he discovered the owner was purposely mislabeling low-grade fuel as high-grade and he feared getting caught up in the legal consequences should the fraud be discovered. So after taking a train across the state to Kansas City to give a speech to the local NAACP chapter there and look unsuccessfully for work, he boarded another train for Chicago, where he would stay at the YMCA. At some point, Gaines started staying at the Chicago chapter of the Alpha Phi Alpha fraternity. He was an alumni, and the fraternity brothers welcomed him with open arms, even taking up a donation to help him with living expenses while he got on his feet. As previously stated, Lloyd had been living hand-to-mouth, relying largely on donations from members of the NAACP and local church organizations to stay afloat while seeking employment. He also relied heavily on his brother George, who was quite put off by the NAACP's treatment of him. He complained that they shuffled him around to speak and be a mouthpiece while George had to lend him money to buy a shirt. It's unlikely he wasn't recognized by the people from whom he was seeking employment, and I can't help but believe his notoriety was a deterrent from hiring him. Gaines had left a duffel bag filled with dirty clothing at the fraternity house when he disappeared. Since he had a history of leaving for days at a time with little or no notice to his friends and family and often kept to himself, no one reported him missing to the police in either Chicago or St. Louis. 
He had sent a letter to his mother a few weeks earlier, bemoaning his inability to just be a normal person and stating that he was going to be traveling so she shouldn't worry if she didn't hear from him for a while. As for my publicity relative to the university case, Gaines wrote his mother, I have found that my race still likes to applaud, shake hands, pat me on the back, and say how great and noble is the idea, how historical and socially important the case, but, and it ends. Off and out of the confines of the publicity columns, I am just a man, not one who has fought and sacrificed to make the case possible, one who is still fighting and sacrificing, almost the supreme sacrifice to see that it is a complete and lasting success for 13 million Negroes. No, just another man. Sometimes I wish I were just a plain, ordinary man whose name no one recognized. He closed the letter by saying he had paid for lodging in Chicago through March 7th. If nothing turns up by then, I'll have to make other arrangements. Should I forget to write for a time, don't worry about it. I can look after myself, okay? As ever, Lloyd. His mother had no reason to contact authorities immediately if she hadn't heard from him in a few weeks or a couple of months. He always turned back up and could be relied upon to keep his appointments. When the trial started back up in Missouri, Houston and Sidney Redmond began actively searching for Gaines. Redmond later said that the Gaines family didn't seem concerned and weren't particularly helpful, but think about what they were dealing with. At the time, the Lincoln University School of Law had opened and people were actively picketing it. There were also regular lynchings, so it didn't pay to be in the public eye as a civil rights activist or even the family of one. I can't go back in time to figure out what they really thought, but I imagine they might have been scared to speak out or even hesitant to file reports because of the lack of accountability for police at the time. They likely wouldn't have looked for him anyway, so why not hope for the best and assume he was going to come back around sooner or later? I've heard that he had death threats against him, says Dorothy Waters' granddaughter, Tracy Berry. Dorothy Waters was the last surviving sibling of Lloyd. Considering the era in which this occurred, the people who made those threats probably made similar remarks to the family. That could account for the family just not talking about it. Lloyd's descendants believe the NAACP took advantage of Gaines for their own cause. Yeah, it appeared to me that they used him as something of a guinea pig, says Paulette Smith-Mosby, another of Gaines's great nieces in St. Louis. They used him pretty good. Because only Gaines had been denied entrance to the University of Missouri Law School, and only Gaines could continue the lawsuit before the Supreme Court of Missouri, the case could not move forward without him. There were rumors that he had been killed, committed suicide, even that he had fled to Mexico to start another life. It wasn't a secret that while he appreciated the media attention of his case, he wasn't comfortable with the privacy it cost him in his personal life. Would somebody be able to pay him off to disappear so that the case would be dropped? The NAACP pushed the disappearance hard, publishing articles across the nation's newspapers for any information on the whereabouts of Gaines. No credible leads were received. Sidney Redmond told Ebony Magazine, It wasn't necessary for Gaines to be present at all the hearings after we filed his petitions, but we were reasonably certain that he was going all the way with the suit. We had checked him pretty close as a student and knew his attitude about such matters. You can imagine how we felt when he failed to show up even after we won. Although Houston, Marshall, and Redmond were reaching out to journalists and making it a big public scene about wanting to find him, they never filed a report or called for an investigation on his disappearance. They also never explicitly said they believed he was met with foul play. At this time, it was not unlikely that he had been abducted or murdered for challenging the segregation laws, and all three lawyers had previously called for investigations when black folks who challenged the system went missing. Fifty years later, near the end of his own career as Supreme Court Justice, Marshall would say, the son of a bitch just never contacted us again. In January 1940, the state of Missouri moved to dismiss the case due to the absence of the plaintiff without opposition from Houston and Redmond.
In 2007, the Riverfront Times, St. Louis's alternative weekly newspaper, revisited the case well over 60 years after Gaines's disappearance. By that time, Gaines had received posthumous honors, and the FBI had accepted the case as the oldest of nearly 100 civil rights-era disappearances referred to it by the NAACP. Through the years, anyone who had a close relationship with Gaines was long dead. Reporter Chad Garrison spoke with George Gaines, a nephew of Lloyd's, and other younger descendants. George was one of two surviving family members who had been alive when Lloyd disappeared, albeit only as an infant. It seems as though Lloyd's family shied from revisiting the pain his absence caused, but when mentioned, it was usually in positive terms. Lloyd was always held in high regard as a person who set a positive example and stood up for what was right, George recalled. Interestingly enough, he didn't learn about the confusion around his uncle's fate until he read an Ebony article detailing the suspicious disappearance in 1951. The reporter Garrison didn't uncover anything new about the actual disappearance or his time in Chicago, but he supposedly found more direct evidence that Gaines may have fled to Mexico to live the rest of his life away from the spotlight. Sid Reedy, who had been an Alpha Phi Alpha brother at Lincoln University, told Garrison he became obsessed with the case in the late 70s, eventually seeking out Lorenzo Green, which was Gaines' mentor in, at Lincoln University. Just in case you forgot, just in case you forgot, Reedy stated that Green had contact with him after his disappearance. According to Green, while visiting Mexico City in the 40s, he had several phone conversations with Gaines. The men planned to have dinner together, but Gaines didn't show up. Green said Lloyd had grown tired of the fight. He had some business in Mexico City and apparently did well financially. I obviously find this dubious as hell. I mean, for one, how did Gaines know that Green was going to be in the very city he had been hiding in for 20 years? Another thing is that he said he'd know his voice anywhere. And I get that, but our memory is so fallible and failing some really distinguished pattern of speech, like unique phrasing, impediments, or very specific intonations, I doubt he would remember as well as he might believe. I think this falls into one of two categories. He was either scammed for some reason, or he made up a pretty lie because it's better than the more likely reality. Garrison reported that Green's son, Lorenzo Thomas, said his father told him of the encounter, so that's something that bolsters the claim a bit. To be fair, some of the Gaines family was willing to accept this claim, albeit mostly out of a sense of self-preservation than a need to find the truth. It's better than being buried in a basement somewhere, Jimmy Hoffa style, said Paulette Mosby-Smith, one of Gaines's great nieces. Others believe that it would have been against his nature. It's hard for me to believe that he went to Mexico and accepted a big payoff, George Gaines told Garrison. That's not the same man who presented himself during the trial. I don't believe he would compromise his integrity like that. Another great niece, Tracy Berry, who went to law school herself and became a federal prosecutor, agrees. She said, when you think of those old photos of lynchings and burned bodies, who wouldn't want to think that he lived a full life in Mexico? But based on the love my grandmother and great-grandmother had for their brother and son, that's really hard for me to reconcile. If you wanted to walk away, there are easier ways to do it than sever ties from the entire family. She has since told the New York Times that she believes her great uncle was murdered. In 2006, the FBI began its cold case initiative, a comprehensive effort to identify and investigate racially motivated murders committed decades ago. Pursuant to that initiative and the passage of the Emmett Till Unsolved Civil Rights Crime Act, the Emmett Till Act, the department and the FBI are working together to address violations of criminal civil rights statutes, resulting in death that occurred not later than December 31, 1979. 
Since February of 2007, the FBI and the division have partnered with the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, the Southern Poverty Law Center, and the National Urban League to identify additional cases for investigation and to solicit their help. In 2007, the NAACP called upon the Federal Bureau of Investigation to investigate for the first time what became of Gaines. As of 2015, the FBI has not reopened the case. So now I leave it to you. What do you think happened? Do you want to believe the beautiful dream of living in Mexico? Or do you think it's more likely that he was murdered? I personally don't believe that he would have left his family like that. I just don't. He was a he was a family-oriented person. That's part of the reason he wanted to stay in Missouri. So it doesn't make sense that he would just say, okay, mom, I'll be fine, I'll contact you soon, and then disappear. I don't think he'd do that to his mama. But that's just my opinion. So let me know what you think in the comments. Follow us wherever you stream podcasts and make sure that you're following us on YouTube for bonus content that you may or may not want to see. And we'll see you next time for True Crime Tuesday. Mwah.